Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. Hey, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. And I know I should stop saying good afternoon because it might not be afternoon for you, but it is for me, so sorry. Oh, well. Anyway, this is our last final, <laughs> seriously, I'm, I'm for real this time, last episode of season one. Back in episode 17, that was the last episode of the theme for season one, which was names and titles. But then I wanted to do a little bit more during the summer, so I did that written language series, that three-parter. And then this final one is just going to be, mm, I'm giving it a fake title because I'll explain in a minute, but a book review. I'm going to talk about some of the books I've read in the last year and give you my thoughts and ideas. But I know it's not going to be so much of a book review because I know a lot of you aren't going to be interested in a lot of the books that I have here. I almost thought about not doing this episode because I was like, oh man, I'm going to be showing them exactly how nerdy I am and how nerdy I get with my reading. So I thought about skipping it, but then I thought, no, you know what? There's some important information that I want to put out there about how to do research and how to choose books and how I choose books. So we're going to do it. So even if you don't care about the particular books that I read, um, listen to how I picked them and what I was looking for in them, because I think we should all be trying to help our brains have more than one perspective on life and the Bible. And that's what I really aim for when I'm reading books. Okay, so that's what we're doing today. A non-book review, book review. (laughs) So I have a stack of books beside me, and I have nine books here, so clearly I'm not going to give you a full review about every single one of them, but I want to mention all of them because they all have some important aspect about them. So in the last year, and I, I didn't count since uh, I finished another book or two, but I've read about, mm, I think it's 33 or 34 books since last July in the last calendar year. And what I usually do is I alternate type of books that I read. I read some kind of more theological, academic, um, more dense, heavy, maybe longer, but not necessarily kind of book. And then I take a break by reading something shorter, easier, maybe some fiction, that kind of thing. And that way I don't get bogged down too much by this heavy theological or academic stuff. But I still learn a lot. So the kinds of books that I throw in the middle for a break, um, often fiction, but not always. Like I reread uh, most of the Narnia Chronicles. I still have one or two of those more to do. And then I reread um, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit just because it's been a while and I couldn't remember why I liked them and I wanted to see if I still liked them. Spoiler for me, (laughs) I still like the books, but I realized that I do not care about the movies at all anymore. <laughs> Sorry to anybody who thinks they're awesome. I, I don't know. I don't want to watch them anymore. Not for me. Anyway, books. Okay, so I, yeah, I like historical fiction. Yeah, once in a while I'll throw Jane Austen in there. Uh, it's been a while for her though. 
I used to read a lot of Elizabeth Elliot books. Um, let's see, what else? Um, I, I want to start rereading classics. So if you know me, I have a Russian studies map. Oh, not master's. What am I looking for? Bachelor's. There you go. I have a Russian studies bachelor's degree. And in that, I read a lot of Russian literature. Um, and then my master's is humanities. And I read a lot of English literature and some African literature, actually, and Middle Eastern. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a fan, kind of, of 19th century British, kind of European, continental European French and Russian literature, and I haven't read a lot of that stuff in a really long time. Um, I did my thesis for my master's on Anna Karenina, um, but I haven't read it since then, probably because I read it, you know, two times just for the master's alone. Anyway, books. So you won't hear me talk a whole lot about what you would find in a bookstore's inspirational section. Um, anybody that lives near an Ollie's probably knows what their book section looks like. There's a huge section for kids. There's a big Bible section in our Ollie's. And then there's this huge inspirational section. I usually skip over that whole thing and try and find something else in and around there, though I don't really go into Ollie's that much anymore. If it's in the inspirational section, I tend to not really take it very seriously at all. And I'm, there's good stuff in there. But it's hard to find, and so I don't bother. I don't know if that makes me snotty or just lazy or something else. But anyway, so I don't, I don't read books by, say, Beth Moore or Lisa Turkist or Jenny Allen or a lot of those really popular authors. I just haven't ever read them, and I... I should probably read one or two just to know what they write about. I used to listen to Jenny Allen's podcast, but don't anymore. So just just a general idea of what I read and how I read it. The type of books that I read to help with research and the podcast are academic books. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about what are academic books, what are considered academic books. And maybe if you went to college you might think of academic books, meaning uh, journal articles out of JSTOR, or a textbook that you have to buy through the college library. That's one perspective of what an academic work or book is. But really the definition behind it has much more to do with how it was written and who had access to it before or when it was published. Okay, and what I mean by that is academic works are peer-reviewed. That means that if a professor at, um, I'm just going to make up something now, okay? If a professor at Rutgers University wanted to publish something about biblical archaeology, he doesn't just find a publisher and say, hey, I went to write this book, and the publisher negotiates with him and makes a deal with him. That's not how they do it at the academic level. That's how you do it for a popular book where they're just trying to make money on the book. You find a publisher, they decide how much of a chance your book is going to have to actually sell, and then they make a deal with you on what they will pay you for the book, right? So academic works are typically published maybe in an academic journal, a piece at a time, in essay form. And then other scholars who are in the same field as you, so this Rutgers University professor 
and he's writing about biblical archaeology. He wants to put it out there for other biblical archaeology professors and scholars to look at it, read it, kind of pick at it, fact check it, and try to defeat any arguments that he might have or prove him wrong. And then he takes their feedback and goes and either makes his argument stronger, changes facts if he discovers that he was wrong. Um, basically, he's held accountable to what he writes by other professionals in his own field. That is how academic writing is done. Okay, so the, the stack of books here, I'm going to thump it. This big old stack of books that I have here, I am not necessarily bringing them up because it was such a great read and you should read it too because I don't think you will. <laughs> I'm being very realistic. I don't think you're going to go out and buy a bunch of these books. But I want to use them ex as examples for the type of books that I read and what is a good type of book to get, especially if you want good, sound biblical doctrine and biblical facts. Facts about the Bible, about archaeology and how it uh, affects what we know about the Bible and biblical history and the culture of the Bible. Okay? So let me add this little point in here too. A lot of people, or at least some people, are kind of afraid to read academic books and works. And why is that? Do you know? Why, when we hear an academic book, this was written by a professor at Harvard. Let's use that name because that might make people a little bit nervous, right? Well, one big reason is that when it's an academic work, they are trying to work from logic and logical thinking and basing things on facts rather than basing things on faith and then adding in some facts, okay? Some academic works and some institutions do this more than others or promote this more than others. Some academic works will reject faith outright and say you cannot have faith, believe things in faith, and be an academic, and have credibility. They outright reject faith. Here's what I do. I look for books and works that are academic and don't reject faith. It's a happy medium, and it's a, it's a small space. <laughs> it's not a ton of places and authors and people that do this. But that's where you won't be finding so much opinion. You'll be finding more logic without having to reject faith. And I find that to be a really important place to be learning. So I read both. I read all kinds of books, but I mostly read academic books. So I'm going to start on my books here. <laughs> Number one, and I read this one last June, so it's out of the calendar year of what I read, but it's a good example of what I read. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's by Kenneth Bailey. And I read this one because I thought it was really good. My Well, first of all, my husband read it first, and he said I should read it. And I really was glad I did because it gave me a different perspective on understanding specific things out of the Bible, such as parables. And some of the stories that we read in the Bible that we think, really? Like, why? That sounds weird. And we can't put it in our own context because we find it too odd and too different and we just don't understand it. So it, 
stories in the Bible become almost like fairy tales because we don't know how to put them into a context. This book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, kind of takes that away a little bit and makes it so that we can understand different stories in different contexts um, because now we understand how those people saw those situations. And I won't get into any stories because it'll take too long. Okay, second book. And this is a one book out of a three-part series. It's called Brief Insights on Mastering Bible Study, and it's by Michael Heiser. I don't know how many of you will know Michael Heiser, but my husband has been a fan of him for a long time. He is a professor. He has a PhD in Semitic studies, so he's like he knows intensely the background of the Bible and Hebrew and all these different kinds of things. And this book, Brief Insights on Mastering Bible Study, is just an incredibly good basic book on how to read the Bible so that you're not deluding yourself or brainwashing yourself or making it into a moral guidebook so that you can read it however you want or turning it into fairy tales. So if there's any book out of this whole stack of books that I have that you should get, I would recommend it. I would definitely recommend this one because it's only mm, 180 pages and it's 80 chapters because each chapter is only two pages long and it's just two pages per topic on how to study the Bible in ways that you can study it on your own and know that you're not making some weird mistake. All right. Next book is by the same guy, Michael Heiser. Um, and you might have heard this guy's name from other things as well. Like he has a podcast called The Naked Bible. And this book is called The Unseen Realm. I know a couple other people that have read this book or at least started it. I don't know if uh, everybody finished it. Um, but this is a really good book that gives a understanding of the spiritual world in the Bible that you may not have really thought through on your own before. And I realized I hadn't. And so it was a really good way to think through the spiritual realities of the Bible in a way that makes sense and isn't kind of watering anything down or making it more sanitized, if that makes sense. Okay, this next book. This one I picked because of the impact it had on me. And... This is a really random book. It's called Iran, Open Hearts in a Closed Land, and it's by Mark Bradley. So I had this book on my shelf, and I hadn't read it for about 10 years, and my dad saw it, and he said, what's that? And I said, a book about Iran. <laughs> and he said, okay, can I borrow it? And so he read it, and he brought it back, and I thought, I have no clue what it is about anymore. I can't remember. I should read it again. So I read it again. And this is another really short one. If you live in the area and you want to borrow it from me, it's only 100 pages and it's a very easy read. It has a pretty big font. And it's about how the Iranian culture and the history of Iran actually makes it a place where people are open to Christianity in ways that you just wouldn't expect. And so it talks about Iranian culture and history and also about the Iranian church, uh, and this is written, I think, in 2006, so it's not exactly up to date, but it's, it's decent. It's not too old. But it's talking about Iranian Christians and how they have to live their lives and what kinds of thinking they have 
for how to make decisions about things. And I included it because part of what I read was that Iranian Christians, partly because their life depends on it, really um, make prayer a priority. And they do that because they also want effectiveness in their Christian life. If they're going to go out and attempt to share the gospel with other people, they have to do it in very specific ways. And they pray very specifically about it. And they pray for a while until they're very confident. And then they know they're doing the right thing. And if they are arrested or otherwise hindered, they know they were still making the right decision. And I thought, you know, I... I want that kind of effectiveness too. I don't want to just be doing things as a Christian and hoping that they matter. That's the worst to me. That's mediocrity to me. And I hate mediocrity. And so after I read this book, I thought, you know what? If prayer is just one part of not being mediocre, then I absolutely want to make prayer more of a priority. I absolutely want to make prayer more of a priority in my life. So since then, I have. Um, still not great at it, but um, much better anyway. The next one is an example of this idea of peer review that I have. I have a book that Heiser, Michael Heiser, recommended to me personally. I had asked him a couple of questions about the name of Jesus and... Heiser is a really busy guy, but I caught him. <laughs> I was emailing with him on a day where he was sick at home. And so he and I just emailed back and forth a couple of times. And I was asking him some questions about um, Hebrew. And he gave me this book recommendation. It's called Jesus, the Incarnation of the Word by David Mitchell. And this is one of those books that's so obscure. I think it has maybe all of 24 reviews on Amazon. And it's not a book that you're going to hear about all over the place. So, Jesus, Incarnation of the Word by David Mitchell. This guy is not American. I think he is Scottish, but he lives in Belgium or something. And he's like the choir director of a massive church. It's a really random story. And if you look at his bio and what else he's written, you would think, why should I bother reading a book by this guy? What does he know? And how does he know it? But here's why I read it, and here's why I'm glad I read it. I read it because it was recommended to me about a specific question that I had asked. And he said, if you want to know, read that book. And it helps substantially. It's where I got a lot of the information for my Messiah podcasts. So this guy had all of his information peer-reviewed. He was, to me, to me, he was a nobody. And I wouldn't have trusted him, except that. Heiser himself told me that this book was peer-reviewed, it was done in essay forms, and it was peer-reviewed by a whole bunch of other scholars, and it made it through the process, and they were like, wow, this is good stuff. So it's ideas that I hadn't heard before, so it felt strange, it felt different, but it was not heretical. It wasn't like saying that Jesus wasn't God. It was saying other things about the Messiah, about the Jewish uh, beliefs about the Messiah. And I'm really glad I read it because it really opened up my mind to understanding how many different perspectives there would have been on the Messiah before Jesus came. And, you know, still are very many ideas of what the Messiah will be if you don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So just a very good book 
to help with that and to to help me to read things by different people even if I don't know the person but I know they did an excellent job with their information. Okay next book is just I wanted to tell you I'm glad I read this book not recommending it though because I don't think you'll read it. The Dead Sea Scrolls Today by James Vanderkam. James Vanderkam is one of the main guys that worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls to get them kind of collated and interpreted and put in order and if there's anybody to read a book from about the Dead Sea Scrolls it's this guy and this book was cited in so many other books and other places that I read since then. Basically I'm really glad that I read something about the Dead Sea Scrolls because we knew they were a big deal right? We know you've heard Dead Sea Scrolls. What are they? Uh, they were found in a cave in 1948 near the Dead Sea in Israel, and they there was an Isaiah, right? There was a book of Isaiah, and uh, they help us to know that the Bible we have today is accurate. That's probably what most people know, right? So much more than that. So much more. So it's a really good book to read to understand what else the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us in terms of understanding the Bible, knowing about the culture and the history surrounding um, what we call the intertestamental period, which is in between when Malachi, the last book of the Bible, was written, and when Matthew started writing, or when Jesus lived. So there's a whole ton of stuff that the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us, and also I didn't know that it took them like 40 years to really work through all the material so that if you're saying, oh yeah, they were found, what, it's 2022, 1948, so 70 plus years ago, and you're like, so it's old news. No, it's not, because the last things that were released to the public were done in the 80s and the 90s. We're still getting stuff out of this, all right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls, still totally relevant, still adding to our knowledge and understanding, not at all an old issue getting down off of my soapbox now. Okay, the next is a twofer because they're about the same topic, okay? So an example of how you can read academic works or not so academic works. So the first one is the academic one, you can tell from the title, A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism of the Bible by Paul Wagner. Very academic, but it tells you all about the ancient manuscripts that we have of the Bible, what are the oldest things that we have, what languages are they written in, what are they written on, how do we know that they're accurate, what does accurate even mean? And we'll talk about a lot of this stuff in season two, so don't worry about it. And then the not-so-academic one, which is written by a professor and a PhD guy, so it's not like he doesn't know his stuff, but the style of writing, his level of writing, like, you know, 12th grade, 9th grade, whatever. The academic version is clearly academic, like college level, reading level. But the How We Got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot is written much more for non-academic purposes. It's written for somebody who just wants to know more about the Bible. It's still a little bit dense, but if you want to read a book that tells you how we got the Bible. I know there's two versions of this book by completely different authors, but Neil Lightfoot is the one that I read, and it's pretty decent. I was pretty annoyed at it, <laughs> I'll be honest. I was pretty annoyed at it first because it was a little bit too preachy and churchy for me, 
so I might as well explain that now. Preachy and churchy. That means taking a lot of liberties with assumptions about what you believe and why you believe it. Um, When I say preachy and churchy, those are written by authors that assume faith, assume that you have an evangelical background or are very strongly evangelical and are not at all academic is what I get out of that. So you might hear me being a little irritated by that stuff every once in a while. Um, Sorry, please, please block it out. But it, hey, I'm talking about it now. It's it's a good book. The last one that I'm going to mention is by my good friend, Sarah, who lets me borrow all of her books. And it's how I have discovered that I don't like historical fantasy. She's loaned me a couple of historical fantasy books. And I realized, no, I don't like this at all because I can't place you in history and I'm trying to. And now I'm just frustrated. But the last book that she lent me is called How Not to Read the Bible. It's by Dan Kimball. If you're looking for a good, like, um, apologetics slash how to think about the Bible, how to talk about the Bible with um, people that question it, that kind of thing, this is a pretty good book to read, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. And it talks about a lot of the weird parts of the Bible or a lot of the difficult to manage parts of the Bible, the violence in the Bible, uh, unicorns in the King James Bible, things that people make fun of, such as David, you know, having to get 200 foreskins for his wife, like, okay, this is weird. Talking about why those things are in the Bible, how to think about them. So even if you know about a lot of that stuff, you might not be able to explain in your own words why those things are there or how to generally be okay with them. So it's a really good book to read so that you can think through those things on your own because he doesn't just explain everything away. He says, this is hard and I don't have a full explanation, but this is how I think of it. So uh, another book that I was a little irritated at first with because he, he repeats himself a lot and he goes pretty slowly. But if you need someone to go slowly for you, this is a good one. So there's my stack of books. We made it through all nine. Yeah, so let me know what other books that you've read that would be worthwhile. I'm always looking for good books. Right now I'm reading a 500-page History of Christianity book um, that only goes up to the Reformation. So that's going to take me a while. And then I still have two more Chronicles of Narnia books, but I'll be ready for new books soon. So if you have anything, let me know use that totally worthless email that I got. <laughs> Text me, whatever you whatever you want to do. But let me know what books you've read lately and how do you pick your books. I'm always curious about how people pick their books because I'm picky. I don't just stroll into a library and take something off the shelf. I want it recommended or I know it's from a person that really knows their stuff. So yeah, tell me how you read your books, why you pick what you pick, and how do you find them? Yeah. Yeah, because I'm spending a lot of money on Amazon. I buy used books, but yeah. And if you're in the area and you want to borrow any of the books that I just mentioned or anything else that I have, let me know and we can do that too. I'm always looking to borrow books from people and trade them around. So yeah. All right. So this is end of season one. We're going to start season two in probably the 
second week of September or so. And then we're just going to have them every other week, like how we did this summer part. So they're not going to be as frequent, but they're all going to be kind of medium length episodes. I'm not going to do any more of those really short ones that are like 10 minutes a piece. They're all going to be closer to a half hour from here on out. Okay. So I hope you guys are having a great end to the summer. Um, school starting in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for listening guys. And I'll see you in season two. Have a good one. Bye-bye.